CJ Sabog, number 15. The speed of Pico, he's in, score, Sabog, for another union. The sprint by Elsinio, flag stays down, Elsinio is in, Elsinio with a goal. Hello everyone, this is KLW News Radio's Greg Orlandini, and this is the Philly Soccer Show. This week, Matt George from the Delaware County Times joins me to talk about the departure of Ernie Stewart from the Philadelphia Union. In the studio with me, uh, as Mike Cervetio is still enjoying his uh, domestic bliss, Mr. Matt DeGeorge from the Delco Times initially was going to have a, a player interview today to go with uh, uh, Mr. George hamming it up with me, but things change, things change pretty rapidly, and the worst kept secret in American soccer came to fruition today, and Ernie Stewart is gone heading to the U.S. Men's National Team as their general manager. It's been a busy week in Chester today, so uh, <laughs> they've, yeah, it's been, it's been busy. This is... Uh, this is one of the busier weeks, I think, in union history, uh, mm-hmm. the, the kind of the last two weeks. And don't need this towards the end of five games in 14 days because right. even even the media is tired. So I can only imagine what players are like. But, yeah, talking points of uh, of Ernie Stewart officially going uh, to the U.S. national team. I think it'll be uh, an interesting step to see what comes next. He's going to still be in his job until August 1st. So there's still going to be a little bit of a wrap-up period. Mm-hmm. But really an important time now, I think, for the Philadelphia Union of how do they move forward from Ernie Stewart, who himself, when he came in two and a half years ago, was very much representative of moving forward from the last era. This is really another instance where they, they have to get the next hire right. Yeah, and so where are we with the Philadelphia Union now? Ernie Stewart's tenure was very short, two and a half years. Respected, I think. Much shorter than expected. I think a lot of people... How far did he move the needle for this team? I was having this debate earlier with with Dave Zeitlin, uh, one of my co-workers, interesting depending on how legacy. And I think the most shocking thing is from the union being determined Brian Colangelo for obvious reasons mm. because it's a debate. But Ernie Stewart is kind of indefinite at this point because in season, one position right now, I don't know if they're going to be in play by the time he leaves. So they won a trophy here. Um, maybe he has laid the foundation is going to be under his control. It's understandable that he makes this jump. This is obviously, I dug a quote from the original press conference in December of 2015, where he said very clearly to come here impact on U.S. soccer directly and build something that can stand the test of time. That's what he has the opportunity mm-hmm. to do. So yes, it's, it's sooner than I think he would have jumped originally, but there's also been a handful of unexpected things that have happened in U.S. soccer's trajectory <laughs> in that time. Um, but when you look back on the union, what, in what ways has he made the team better? I think it's an open question. We can point to the youth aspect of it. Uh, guys like Austin Trusty, uh, Anthony Fontana, Derek Jones, they've made their way into the first team as regulars, but they've also been in the system for sometimes six, eight years before he was here. So I think Ernie Stewart deserves some credit for that, but certainly not total credit for uh, guys that came up through Richie Graham's YSC Academy. He's... Uh, I think helped build a lot of the behind the scenes things, 
but some of the other accomplishments are not necessarily his. Bethlehem Steel is something that got started under Nick Sakevich. He's obviously helped progress that pathway, and he's had a, a good role in that. And, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of these guys like Austin Trusty and Mark McKenzie, they're the process has been accelerated. They're in the starting 11 a lot quicker than they might have ordinarily been. And we only need to look back to Zach Steffen of there's a distinct chance of high-achieving academy kids not getting into the union mm-hmm. uh, the union squad at all because it's not a favorable environment for them. So he definitely deserves some credit there. But at the same time, playoff wins, still still, still zero. And that's kind of a, that's kind of a big thing. I think it's a lot of uh, unfulfilled promises. I, I think that the youth structure was there, at least the beginnings of it were there. And he may have came in and solidified some things and made sure there was that pipeline going from YSC and from the academies into the team. And may, like you said, maybe just made it easier for that transition from the academy to to the senior team. With And now you're seeing trustee and... McKenzie and you know Real's kind of scraping in, but he's he's definitely in the conversation and things like that. But and maybe this was something we projected onto Ernie in a lot of ways that he came in and we thought, okay, talking about a pipeline, we thought there was going to be a pipeline from Europe right. that he was going to be able to identify players that can help us in th- this year and the next year instead of players that can help us in three, four, five years like the academy guys. And that just never really came to fruition. They all but turned away from South America mm-hmm. and Central America. They, apart from really a calm, never really looked internally into MLS for talent to, to, right. to make a move, to make a trade. And his international signings, I mean, Dochelle has been playing very well lately, but, you know, Jory's still out. Jay Simpson, terrible. Yeah, Does, I mean, not uh, he's a non-factor, a, a complete non-factor that you're that you're spending a lot of money on, and then the you know Bedoy came over, but that process was preceded him. I mean, the beginnings of that preceded Ernie as well. Right. Um, and and you look at you know the, the one the, and the two times they did go with an MLS, David Akam, which is not looking great currently, no, and Charlie Davies, which it, which was a move that I still can't explain. Right. Apart from that he was Bedoya's buddy and maybe they brought him in to hang out with Ali. I don't know. And they apparently gave up a lot for him. So the two moves they actually did make with an MLS, MLS weren't good. You had you know, Simpson, which is not a good move. You had Roland Auberg, which is I think mixed results. He scored a lot of goals, but he, best, he was all yeah. but he was always a headache. I think you'd put El Senio into that category of mixed results. Mm-hmm. I mean he's um, Medujanin's has been a good signing. Yeah, Medujanin's been very good. Um, but still, if you're if you're a team with the market size of the union and the spending capabilities, you can't go whatever it is charitably four for seven on signings. <laughs> you you don't have the bandwidth to do that, and that might be a a percentage that works at a different club. I, you know, Atlanta can probably get along with that because they have the the money and the infrastructure absorb that with the union. Yeah, doesn't. I mean, who was the center mid that they had last year? Was it Carmona that they were kind of mm-hmm. not? You know, was okay. They were kind of not happy with, but the other guys were great. They can get away with that. Right. The union can't get away with that, and I think that absolutely is probably the biggest short-term drawback mm-hmm. on Ernie Stewart. Long-term, he's done some good things, but they're right now very intangible things that the average fan's not going to know. The average fan's not going to know 
that the union have a very clear definition of what kind of a number 10 they want and that for the next five to 10 years or maybe even longer, this is the kind of number 10 that they're going to target and they're going to be able to go into transfer markets and whittle down the field of potential number 10s and it's going to be easier for them to get number 10s Mm -hmm. in the future. It's going to be easier for them to scout draft players as center backs based on what it is that they're looking for. You know, they're looking for good feet, distribution, all those kinds of things. Maybe not physicality as much, but, you know, he's done such a great job behind the scenes of codifying all these things of what everyone's job should be, what their Mm -hmm. expectations are, how they're going to be graded on those expectations, all those kinds of things. And those were quantity, those were commodities that were very much lacking in the previous administrations or however many administrations we want to break that into. Those are all really good things, but those are inward facing things. Those are not things that are going to make the union more relevant or or anything like that. And I think you could make a pretty potent argument that the union are less relevant in Philadelphia now than they were when Ernie Stewart came came in, or at the very least they're further behind the pack because you had, when he came in in, so he was hired in October of 2015, uh, formally announced in December of 2015. You had, uh, I believe, the dying days of the Chip Kelly era. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was plenty of disillusionment on the Eagles' side. You had the Phillies still looking at one, at least one more really bad season. You had the Sixers in the middle of, I don't know if that was the 18-win season or the 10-win season, but, but it wasn't. academic. Yeah. <laughs> you had an aging Flyers team, and you had acres of space yeah. in that in that late that year into 2016 to really say, okay, this is a relevant team. You should really pay attention to us. And they're moving in the same direction that a lot of these teams are. They're moving in the, the same youthful, exciting, homegrown direction that the Phillies are or that the Flyers are or that the Sixers are. Mm-hmm. But they're doing it at the wrong time because they're behind all of those. So I think the distance to the fourth most exciting team in Philadelphia, which I guess you would argue would be the Flyers right now, probably has point, probably yeah. even widened in the last two and a half years. Yeah, I mean, that's something we've talked about a lot on here. And I've talked about with my, my colleague, Matt Leon, uh, that we've you know discussed that they had different points in their franchise where they could have not taken over the city, but really staked their claim to who they are and where they are in the sports landscape in, in, in Philadelphia. And they just they just missed that ring so many times. They just swiped at that brass ring and missed it so many times. That I'm not saying it's too late, but it's a lot harder job now. And that's the other thing that kind of marks out the Ernie Stewart era for me. It was like this lack of urgency mm-hmm. and this lack of appreciation of where this franchise was, the frustration of this fan base, and just the, you know, just all the misleading things that have been fed to these fans from this franchise, from Sikavich and, you know, and, and, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do X, we're going to do Y, we're, you know, we're a big team, we're this and that. And it just, it never, you never saw, you never saw that happen. And then Ernie and every, and again, I think a lot of people projected things on Ernie, but you see him come in with his bona fides in Europe and all of that. And you just felt like, okay, they're, they're, they're going to have some kind of urgency now. They're going to make some splashy moves. They're going to do something. And it was just that lack of urgency and just that lack of appreciation of what the fan base wanted. And and he verbalized that. And he didn't seem 
too concerned with with what the fan base wanted. A little clumsily at times. I think that's that's another big strike against Ernie Stewart is that there was always that dissonance. He came in to a club that had missed the playoffs four straight seasons. And as much as it would have been logical to give him a clean slate, and I think he still did get a clean slate by and large, Mm -hmm. that weight is still heavy. And, you know, now you're looking at that weight continually, continuously piling on to now this is season number nine and still no playoff wins like that. The next coach or the next uh, general manager who comes in, sporting director, is going to have to understand that, I think, a little bit better than Ernie Stewart yeah. did and understand that sense of it's kind of a self-imposed sense of urgency, not one to make mistakes because that's what uh, Ernie Stewart was very guarded against, but one that you know you do have to maybe make some short-term moves that are not the most sustainable long-term just because you got to win a playoff. I mean, right. we're, uh, this argument has been had many times, but we're talking about the absolute base level of competence in an MLS season, which is being in the top half of a league to make the playoffs. Like That is the base level yeah. of competence, and they have failed that test six of the eight years that they've existed, and currently they are not passing that test either this season, though there is much season left. Mm. I would hope that the next person that they bring in understands that, and I think that gets to the way that Ernie Stewart's going to be emotionally remembered here. I I don't think there's going to be a ton of fondness for him, and I, I think that he exists in a space where he has the scapegoat of an owner who doesn't spend or respond to media comments often, um, but they do have an owner who is able to be the scapegoat for Ernie Stewart and say, well, yeah, Ernie didn't win here, but you have this owner. I think some of the sentiment when he came in was that if ever we were going to win with this ownership group, it was because of someone like Ernie Stewart who was mm-hmm. going to come in and maximize that return, and that hasn't happened. So I, I'd be interested to gauge the the fan response in this, but this doesn't feel like one of Philadelphia's own moving up the ranks and graduating to something bigger and better. This feels like an incomplete, kind of an incomplete job that hasn't finished or or, or really paid the dividends, and now he's just moving on. Because he doesn't have anything to hang his hat on here. He doesn't, you know, there's no deep run in the playoffs. There's not a U.S. Open Cup. There's not a lights-out international signing. Again, you have the youth guys, but that's a little more ephemeral, and that's a little, and that was... That wheel was turning before he got here, and that was something that Jim Curtin wanted. And even, and, the, and even the good signings, if we're really going to be honest about them, you know, Harris is 33 years old. Yeah. He's not going to be here for five years. No. Il Senio is 32 and is on a one-year contract. Bork Dolchkal could very well be not here next year because it's a loan deal. So it's not like you're bringing – it's not like anybody that he has brought in with maybe the exception of Alejandro Bedoya, but I believe even his contract is up either this year or next mm-hmm. year. You know, it's not like you've brought in someone who's, you know, you're not bringing in Joseph Martinez at 25 right. who's going to then be here for two years and be super prolific and all. Like, you're not bringing in anybody like that who's going to say that's that's Ernie Stewart's walking legacy. I right. mean, Ernie Stewart's walking legacy right now is, I don't know, Derek Jones? Maybe. Maybe. And that's, you know, and he that's and that like, can't crack the 18. And, and he's having his own issues as a player. <laughs> It's um. So with Ernie gone, what does this mean for Jim Curtin? That's a very good question. Um, Ernie has been 
very much a champion of Jim Curtin through through good times and bad and mostly bad. Um, I don't think we've really gotten a, a straight answer from Curtin yet because the news has been pending and Curtin hasn't wanted to kind of step outside of that lane, but he is losing one of his staunchest defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hope that uh, Curtin has done enough this year in what has been improvement from early in the season to warrant at least the rest of the year with whoever the new uh, whoever the new sporting director is. But, you know, Jim Curtin has also been here. This will be now what? This is his uh, fourth full season? Mm-hmm. Fourth, so four and a half years with no playoff victories. That's, that's, not, a great, uh, that's not a great resume for a, a, a new em- employer to come in and, and, and look at. Yeah, I, th- I think for Jim, this is happening at a good time because the team's been playing well. So say if the new guy came in, Whoever the new guy is, if hopefully if there is a new guy, that's another discussion we'll have in a minute. And they were mired in that kind of that winless streak. That's something he's got to look at, and he's got to look at the totality of you know Jim's tenure here. But he's come. Whoever's going to come in is coming in when they've the performances have improved, the results have improved, uh, things like that. So I think it's a little better timing in that regard for Jim. That he could get the whole year, unless it falls off the table again, which is again possible with this team. So he may very well get the entire year, even if he, you know, if they fall short playoff wise. Um, do they go external for this hire? Yes, I think they absolutely have to. I, I, I don't. Who, who would be the internal hire? Uh, <laughs> the only guy that's and you know, the only candidate would be Albright. No. Um, I, I, no, I, I, I think I, I, I don't, like Chris, but I, I don't think that uh, I, I think that I, I think Chris is good in his role, mm-hmm. um, which is a more focused role. Um, I think you want a sporting director who's going to be more of a big picture person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think Albright and Ernie Stewart worked well together. And I think Albright could work well as an executive under whoever that next person is. Huh. I, I don't think I, I think I, I, you need to bring in someone that has a little bit more seasoning at this point. I think it would show, again, a crushing lack of ambition. All due respect to Chris Albright. I think if you went internally with this hire, it would just send all the wrong signals. Yeah, and I, I also think it would send some of the wrong signals to not fill this position until after the season. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the union have the potential to be a team that is one summer signing from making a difference. And that, I, I think that yeah. summer signing would probably be uh, at the forward position for a team that's struggling to score goals and has a, a striker who is clearly over now 18 months in this country not really working out and certainly not justifying his pay uh, in Jay Simpson, who you know could easily be let uh, to pursue English opportunities in, in August and you bring in someone new who maybe puts you over the top. I think it would be very concerning not to have that person in place uh, pretty quickly. pretty quickly. They can't um, – yeah, they can't go through another window like they did last summer and not do anything. Again, talking about complete lack of ambition. They, they cannot do that, especially if they're in this position where they are – we're at that seventh spot and they're kind of scraping along against the teams around them and they're you know just inching closer and – Maybe they get over that red line for a week, then they get below. They 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 do that. 
that seesaw thing again where you can bring in somebody that could just solidify you finally in, into a playoff team. But they can't they can't let that sw- slip away again, which they absolutely, absolutely. did last, and, last year. And not to get not to get maybe too ahead of ourselves here, but they also are at a point where even if they're dealing within MLS now that they've had this emergence of these homegrown players, mm-hmm. they have redundant assets on their team. Um, you know, I don't think Josh Arrow has a, a pathway to minutes behind Jack Elliott no. and the two homegrowns. Uh, I think if you got the right price for Warren Craval, you could say, hey, all right, Derek Jones, you're our backup number six. You're going to be on the bench every week. Figure out whatever you got to figure out. And mm-hmm. We'll plug the hole at the number eight with Anthony Fontana. I think Fabian Herbers is surplus to, uh, requirements now that Marcus Epps has emerged the way that he has and you and you still have a healthy El Sino. And I think if you bring in a striker, you could even think about is C.J. Sapong as vital to the long term to this effort as um, as he might be. I mean, you would need to bring in absolutely the right striker right. to do that and probably outside of the price range of the union. But you have some pieces that have value elsewhere in MLS. You have the potential to make some moves and make some changes that are going to help this team compete in the short term and the long term. And again, this is the sense of urgency that I think we we just talked about. Like to say, well, we've got all these young guys. We don't want to mess it up because this is a this is a a playoff team in 2019. Well, if you're that close, and if you're someone like Jim Curtin who really believes we are one fill in the blank player away from being a playoff team and not just a playoff team, there's enough inconsistency in the East that they could be in that four or five range. Mm-hmm. Go get them. Like put it on the table and say, go get them and then sink or swim, whether or not you guys can actually figure it out and get over that hump. Yeah. Like that's the sense of urgency that you need to show. And I think not having a sporting director in place, or at least not having a plan to navigate that space, that would be concerning. Uh, the name has been kicked around just because it seems logical and he's available is uh, Ali Curtis, uh, who came out of Red Bulls, a uh, team with a good academy system and a team that wasn't afraid to flash a little money and guys like, you know, Terry Henry and Tim Cahill and things like that. It, it, it seems logical. I honestly am not sure who else is available or who else is on the Jay Sugarman's list right now. But, I, I mean, it seems the most obvious because he has knowledge of MLS, um, which is in I think extremely important because just the way things operate in this league is a little different than than most leagues, and I, I think you need that at least that foundation. Um, it, it seems like a logical move. I mean, <laughs> it does, which might be the first strike against it uh, yeah. as far as the union's considering of it. Yeah, you, you want to bring in somebody who kind of fits in this butter zone of of having ambition mm-hmm. as a executive, but also is able to accept. To a certain degree, or at least work within the constraint, the constraints of of how much money is available. And Ali Curtis is coming from a place in Red Bull that has considerably deeper pro, uh, deeper pockets than I believe Jay Sugarman does. Um, they, Jay Sugarman doesn't have international beverage consortium money, <laughs> so I, I think they have to figure out a way to do that. And maybe in the past they've erred on the side of caution a little bit. I think they've. You know, with all due respect to Ernie Stewart, Ernie Stewart is someone who came from that environment of not big spenders. And as a result, I think some of the activities that they've had in the transfer market have been a little limited. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a tough dance. It's a tough dance to bring in somebody who's going to be ambitious in his actions, but also at the same time say, 
listen, the only way that we're going to compete is if we do, if we spend X amount of right. millions. I think that's in any interview process that they go into with a sporting director, you got to think that's his first question that okay, what are my resources? What, if I need to go out and get X to make this team better, what tools do I have to do that? And that's a difficult question to answer with the union. Well, I, I think it's an easy question to answer, <laughs> but it's not a, it's not a palatable answer yeah. to get, Yeah, which is, you know, which is a thing. And I don't know that that problem and it is a problem is going to be solved anytime yeah. soon. I, I, I mean, we, it's certainly a question that, you know, in the aftermath of Ernie Stewart stepping away, I'm sure Jay Sugarman at some point will uh, probably surface to discuss this a little bit. Um, but again, this is a big, this is a big time for him because he really asserted himself in this hiring process for the first time in 2015 publicly, mm-hmm. where he said, "This is, you know, this is my team, and I played an active role in this, and I liked what he said, I liked what Ernie Stewart had to say, and all those kinds of things." And yet today. You know, he's talking to the Philadelphia Union's website and making assertions such as that they're one of the high spending teams when you factor in second division and youth spending and all that, which I that that's the, the books are too <laughs> opaque to actually factually uh, discredit that. But I would find that hard to believe. But right, uh, whatever. We'll take it on the face of it. We'll take that for now. But what they don't have, which is bore out what we've seen from their salaries, they're willing to pay salaries. They do not have that ready resource of cash to go get a guy. That is true. They don't have that. And we saw that with the machinations they had to go through just to get Borak Dojakal, who's a fine player, but it's not like they, they were like DC's doing. They're wrestling and trying to get uh, Wayne Rooney. They, they got you know a guy that was a, a good player in the Czech League and a good player for his national team and kind of bounced around a little bit and took a payday in China. Which is probably, which I think in part explains the pivot away from South and Central America because you do have to, you know, if you're going to go down there and get younger guys in their early to mid-20s, you are going to pay up for transfer fees, and they obviously haven't. um, They haven't done that. And And I think that's that's penny-wise and pound-foolish because you can get, you get Val, I say this, and you point to Atlanta and I scream up and down, you can get more value out of Central and South America for players than you can because you play, pay a premium for European players. Right. And Because can, the Europeans have been willing to already pay that premium for the right. players. But it also goes back to what I think is a larger existential conversation that we won't have solved until the first of these homegrown players makes a move to Europe, which mm-hmm. is name the last player from the union who left the union for a better club than the union. And the answer to that, I think, would be short of Roland Alberg going back to Sofia, mm-hmm. which even that was just kind of a spitting out. There's really very few. Um, I can't think of another one. Um, they all go to USL or they go but, wherever yeah, Chaco's playing yeah, right now. Yeah, apart from Michael Farfan, who went to a Mexican club, but that was... That he never really played all yeah, that much that, that he didn't really, yeah. you know, he was out in uh, six Roger months. Torres is playing in the Colombian Premier Division, right. so that's at least something. Um <laughs> But 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 again, that's I think not, that's the but, next that's kind of the next. They step. didn't get. I think they got a transfer fee for Farfan. I believe they did get that. But yes, they did. They, I don't think they got value for Roger. Uh, you know, and that's that's what this whole exercise was supposed to be with earning that you buy low, sell high. That you can grow these kids and either keep them and make them your 
your core or you can use them as a commodity to get cash to get player X to get better. And they're and, so, but they're so delayed in that process that they're only just now coming up with the tactical philosophy to get there that they even haven't even gotten to the fa- you know Ernie's gone before they even get to the right. uh, to the economic part right. of it, which is concerning. And I think once they if they get to that point, then maybe you can start putting into play. Okay, well we can pay a million dollar transfer fee because we're going to get you know our sixty seven percent or whatever the MLS clubs cut is of this transfer fee for. You know, say a German club comes knocking for Austin Trustee in a couple of years. Say, right. you know, Andre Blake is signed by an by an English club, which they have been obviously reticent to sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't you know maybe another example there. But you know, uh, again, that's that's the process of maturing as a club, and their development in that department is stunted. As we're now here in the middle of the ninth season, and <laughs> still trying to figure these things out, and you know. Yeah, and that's the frustrating thing. That goes back to what I said, just a lot of unfulfilled promises again with this team. And this is just going to be another one, it looks like, with uh, with Ernie. Um, so today, what, 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 how does this all affect the Philadelphia Union today? I mean, they're in the middle of a season. They're, I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit about getting, you know, not ignoring the transfer window and getting an opportunity to go and get a player to, to help you. But What's this mean today for the Philadelphia Union? It's an interesting question. I think paradoxically it's hit them at a good point in the season because they've been busy. So they've just kind of had their – I think the players have had their head down and mm-hmm. it hasn't been all that you know, all that much of an issue, um, all that much of a distraction for them. It, maybe it be, grows into a more of a distraction for, say, Jim Curtin behind the scenes. But we'll see. Uh, I don't think it means a ton mm-hmm. for this team right now. Um they're focused, they're in a battle, and I think that there's enough pride in that locker room that, you know, they weren't winning for Ernie Stewart or for anyone else, they're winning for themselves. So I think the impact will be minimal. I think the impact will be bigger in the short to medium term yeah. of any time a new sporting director is going to come in, they're going to want some of their guys and they're going to want to get out some of their other, some of the previous guys' people. And I think you're also going to get the same thing when you have a new coach. So... Um, I think there's going to be a little bit of friction between those eras. I think a lot of it can be a lot easier if this team makes a run and ends up getting to the playoffs and, you know, even crazy thought wins a game. But um, I, I don't think that I don't think that this team's now all of a sudden going to go straight down the tubes because Ernie Stewart's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he is still going to be here until, like, like they said, uh, August 1st. So he'll still be around for most of the bulk of the summer which I guess will be beneficial having him kind of in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how they pick up after that and, and how they move on. I guess it's, you could say is kind of one of the upsides is he wasn't fired and it's like, he's got cleaning his office out now that if they hire an alley curse or whomever that he can be here and there could be a little more seamlessness to that transfer to that, you know, just you don't have an absolute void. Mm-hmm. At least you hope you don't, if they make the, the higher in a in a timely fashion that you have kind of an overlap, which is a luxury you don't often have in right. in these kind of situations. So that 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 could uh, that could be helpful. And I also don't think Ernie Stewart is a cut and run person. He's not, you know, he's not checked out by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think he's going to give this job as much as he has for the remaining time that he has. It just fits his personality. It certainly fits the way that he played. And I think it fits the way that he kind of thinks. Um, 
So I don't I don't think they're in danger of being in this kind of donut hole period from from now until August 1st where there's no one minding the shop. I think the danger is after August 1st mm-hmm. and then maybe there's no one minding the shop right. if they don't find a replacement quickly. Um but you know, I would I would hope that the connections that Ernie Stewart has to not necessarily handpick a successor, but at least say at least kind of pre-vet right. some of those people and be like I, you know, I don't think Ernie Stewart's going to pick his puppet or his guy, right. but he's also not going to probably stand idly by because he still will be peripherally involved in a yeah. lot of the things that the union are doing. I don't think he's going to sit idly by if the union are, say, looking towards someone who is clearly wrong for them and clearly wrong for the project that they've put together. I think that he's set the guidelines for everything here in this club, yeah. including probably the search for his successor. Um, all right, before we wrap up, uh, let's look at on the field if we can. Oh, that's right. The soccer team plays soccer. <laughs> Occasionally. Um, so last evening or whenever you're listening to this, the uh, Union they advance pretty handily against the Richmond Kickers. Uh, I don't know. What, you know, They got some young guys, some run outs. I think they got Harris got a run out, I think, just to keep his legs on there because he's going to miss a little bit of time, which we will get to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they advance. Uh, did the draw happen yet for the fifth round? I, don't know I believe Thursday morning. Thursday. There's a, there's a uh, slate of games tonight. So right. Thursday morning, I think they're in line for uh, – there's a New York Derby, D.C., hmm. uh, and then I don't know who won that Louisville game. Right. So, um, But I think they'd be in line for one of those teams. So, so and, you know, cup runs always fun, so hopefully they could sustain this. And I, I think they have the legs to do it if, if they get into a cup run. I think so. I mean, you know – they're really the only area of concern that I see right now is at center back because mm-hmm. you only have three center backs that are yeah. healthy and Yarrow and Marquez are right around the corner to healthy. They're not fit by any stretch of the imagination right. or game fit. But I would imagine by the end of the World Cup break, they'll be ready to go. So right. that really would be the only issue. But, you know, I think you look at that lineup last night that they put out there and obviously Harris would not have started under ordinary circumstances, which these aren't. But to have to have Burke up top and mm-hmm. to have Epps and Fontana and Derek Jones and Matt Real and uh, Mackenzie was still starting last night with Jack Elliott, like mm-hmm. that's exciting to have yeah. those guys out there. Um, so I I think that the uh, I'm struck by a few years ago. This was, well, it was probably now close to ten years ago. There was a year that I think Manchester United made a deep run in the FA Cup, mm-hmm. and um, it was a Sir Alex Ferguson team, and he was very adamant that like these are my guys that are going to play in the Open Cup, and it was all young guys. Right. Um, to the point where, like, they debated when they got to the final whether or not we should bring in the starters. And I think on a couple fronts, Sir Alex was like, no, these young guys got us here. We're going to play with them. That was, I think that part of it's kind of exciting that you have this space where we're not just, and this is tangentially an Ernie Stewart thing, of all the times that Jim Curtin would talk about, well, we have young guys and we have guys that, you know, are on the outside of, they're on the fringes of the squad and, we're just waiting for them to come in, and then we'd get to the Open Cup, and they played the same guys over and over again because those guys weren't really actually that good. <laughs> now the guys are actually that good. I think, yeah. I, I, and you can you have opportunities, and you have a game like last night where even Fabian Herbers isn't in the picture. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget that two years ago, Fabian Herbers started like 23 games. Eric Ayuk is nowhere, and three years ago, he started 28 games. Right. Like You have that kind of depth where the Open Cup gives you a chance to showcase that and give you a glimpse of the future, which is exciting. Yeah, you actually have youth that can contribute instead of just having youth. Yeah, and you can you can play the youth, and it's not just, well, we trust the youth and it's blind, you know, yeah. it's just hot air. You actually can trust them, and you can tell Boric Dochkal, 
put your feet up, take tomorrow off. No right. CJ Sapong, no Fafa Pico. You guys just watch the game. These guys will go figure it out, and and they have. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that's a, that's an important building step. And I, I think it's good that these guys have kind of played through the academy together. That McKenzie and Trusty know each other, and and, and things like that, and they know Real and uh, and Fontana has come up with Trusty, and you know they have a relationship. And it, it's important that you, you you see that continuity, which. Again, I, I I think you know we talked about it earlier. I think you know you're right that the academy was there, but I think I just think that that process was smoothed out a right. little bit. Um, so let's talk about Atlanta. Uh, the, the reverberations of that game we're still feeling. Uh, where you lose, I I, I got to say though, with nine guys, you hold Atlanta, you score, and you hold Atlanta to only one open field open play goal. I, I'm not big that's on true. I'm I, not big on moral victories, but that's as close that's as you're true. ever going to get to 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 one. I I read <laughs> I read Dan Walsh's column about that, which uh, to to call a three one loss the proudest game in Union history is uh, both a bold statement and <laughs> probably the most damning indictment you could have of the Philadelphia Union history. But we digress. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they 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 stood firm, and and I think that was a really gutsy game. Yeah. Uh, I think they – I was impressed by the level of kind of control that they kept after the 20th minute and after Harris's head exploded all yeah. over the field. Um, but the level of control that they showed after that to stay in the game. And, you know, you leave that game and you're even on, on goals from the run of play. Because yeah. they could have rolled over. I don't think too many people would have blamed them down two men. No, I think I think you very easily could have seen that and you could have seen, a, you know – you could have seen a seven nothing. There's, there's yeah. precedent for that at Mercedes Benz Stadium, and they mm-hmm. didn't do that, uh, which was impressive. Curtin makes a, a an important tactical decision, bringing on Warren Craval yeah. to keep everything compact and stuff like that. And you know, Mark McKenzie played really well despite being despite having that mistake that led to the penalty. But he plays quite well, and Trusty played pretty well, and Blake made some great saves. And there's a lot of things there. Now it's a matter of doing that in a game where you're not down two men. Yeah. Uh, that way, you know. We've said this so many times, but if if the union and this is what's so seductive about this season is that if the union play like they did at Red Bull Arena at home against a lesser opponent or even an even opponent, they will win that game. Mm-hmm. If they play like they did at Atlanta at home against Toronto this weekend, for instance, they will beat Toronto. Yeah, but they have to actually go and do it. They have to, and that makes it uh, maybe exciting to watch the games, mm-hmm. but in retrospect, it could also make it very frustrating because you yeah. know what they're capable of if that's not real. Because you, you don't know if they've turned that. You, you see the potential, you just don't know if they've turned that corner to be that team. Well, you know that they've turned the corner, but <laughs> now you're just wondering, why do you keep going back around the corner? <laughs> just stay on the road that you're on right. and go straight. Um, was that a penalty for you? Um, it was a penalty that at the very least warranted some talk uh, or warranted a second look. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's probably a penalty very often when you go in from behind in an instance like that. Yeah. Even if you do catch the ball, there's the illusion of going through the man. Having watched mm. it probably two dozen times, I'm still not sure whether he contacts ball first or the back of his leg. That being said, if you'll notice, I, I took a screen cap of when the penalty's called. And from the camera angle, at least on the Fox Sports South broadcast, mm-hmm. Soren Stoika's nowhere in right. the picture. So I think that's at least warranting a look via VAR if the Fabinho handball, which is a, a penalty, I think, about 14 times out of 10, yeah. 
warrants a look through VAR, then I have no idea why <laughs> something that so gray and at, at least to just diffuse uh, tension. Right. And you had the screenshot, and oh, uh, Galarsep posted something where it was basically frame by frame. And if we're sitting here doing that kind of parsing, right? Then if there's no VAR, then there's probably not a penalty. But if there is VAR, you take a look. You at least take a look. That's what it's there for. And and it was just a bizarre mishandling, I think, of the situation from a lot of people. But I think from Stoichko. Oh, absolutely. So, I think yeah. I think um, I think Harris is absolutely in the wrong for losing his head like that. There's there's no doubt about that. That's mm-hmm. why he started last night because I, I, the union are absolutely 100 percent not challenging both of those yellow right. cards. But at the same time. Uh, you know, the referee has to know that Bedoya is on a yellow card and to send him off for what is a, a little bit of petulant time wasting, but is such a mundane minor infraction. And like, it's, it's, it's so silly. A little bit of gamesmanship from a veteran player, from a team captain. A little bit. That happens. That's probably trying to cajole him into uh, waiting so that he can actually take a second look at on the yeah. video. Um, but to send him off for that. And, and also, I think that he, in the Harris conversation, kind of initiates that second yellow card a little bit. It's a little bit of, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you want to yell at me? I'll yell at you kind of situation where the referee has to say, okay, this guy's very angry. Give him the yellow card. Walk away. Turn Mm -hmm. your back. Walk away. Like to give to give (laughs) there must have been some very magic words to have given two yellow cards that quickly. (laughs) There's a lot of wrong to go around. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, as a referee, I don't think he really, uh, did a great job that day. Yeah, and I, I think there are a few automatic words that you could say to a ref that'll get you in trouble, and or references, or however. I'm not sure what Harris said, but I'm sure he used a few of them. I'm not even sure what language it was in. So, <laughs> oh yeah, he could, he's at least trilingual, so he, he could have hit him in all kinds he of... He probably hit him with a lot of words that he, if he had known what those words are, he would have invented a different <laughs> color of card. Um, yeah, really. And But it, it's the thing, I, I, the ref's job is to defuse situations, not to... The ref's job is to control a game. Yeah, and, and I, I, to, to, I, I don't know if he, if, I don't know if I buy that he didn't know that Bedoya was on a yellow already, or he had forgotten. He was he was awful quick to the back pocket. Yeah. Um, after giving him the second yellow card, if that I honestly that then you have to decide which one's worse, deeming that that is worthy of a second yellow card yeah. or not knowing that he was on a yellow card, and I. I think they've, you know, with Bedoya being the captain, he's not exactly someone who flies under the radar. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm sure there's multiple conversations that he has with the referee. Yeah, he is a he, known, no, he is he's, a known entity. It's not like yeah. it's not like you're confusing Fabinho and Ilcino when you're like, I can't remember which Brazilian I carded because <laughs> they're, you know, the the second two, the last two guys that walk out of the tunnel. Like he's the captain. He's there. He's front. And he's center. very. You should demonst- really know who he's that is. He's such a demonstrative player. I mean, you you you're aware. When he also is out when there. he picked up his first yellow card, if you notice, he picks up the first yellow card for pulling back Darlington Nagby in transition, mm-hmm. and actually looks at Stoica and nods and says, "Yep, that's that's a yellow yeah. card." Because it was a yellow card. Right. It's a tactical professional foul. Right. Which he's you know again he's a veteran guy and. He did a little gamesmanship in the box, which happens, I'm sure, more than we notice. I mean, a doesn't how, how often how often is there jostling in the box before a free kick? I, right. I put it in the same category as that. There's jostling in the right. in the box, which is which is just you get yelled at, which gives your guy an extra yeah. second because he just ran up he just ran up from 50 yeah. yards behind the play to take the corner kick. 
gives him an extra second to breathe right. over it. Like right. It's it's, it's holding like, in the NFL if you want to call it every play you can. Yeah, yeah. It's like one of those things. Um so you have your two basically two thirds of your central midfield gone for Toronto. Pending. But yeah. Pending, but I mean just assuming things that are what they are, Bedoya and Harris are not playing like uh, on Friday. That would be the thought, yeah. <laughs> who 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 gets tapped for you? Um I think It's a good question. Um if that's the case, I think you probably go Craval uh, and Jones maybe. Um Okay. I think you can go Craval and Fontana. I I like that better. I don't know that you go Jones and Fontana. I don't think that that's necessarily. I think the most I, I think I think Warren you want in there because he's the more veteran guy. And yeah, he, there's the former team aspect too. Yeah, you know, you know, Warren Craval is probably the most underutilized resource on this team because you know if you put him out there, yes, he's not the most dynamic number six, but he is going to do a job for you. And no, he's no. going to do that job very well as long as you don't ask him to do Harris's job and hit. Right. 50-yard pinpoint-left-footed crosses. Uh, of any of your midfielders, I think he's the best ball pursuer. I mean, he's the best guy. He's the best, Absolutely, he's the best ball winner. Yeah. yeah. And um, and I think you're going to need, if uh, if Victor Vasquez is in there, you're going to want him mm-hmm. on Victor Vasquez and in, up in Victor Vasquez's space I, I as give, often as I possible. Give, I give Fontana the start. I'd like to see him get some more minutes. I think, and at home, like, it's a tough and opponent. coming off a goal. Coming, coming off, off a goal. Coming off a goal. goal. I know he played Tuesday. It's a tough opponent. But he's 18, 19 year old kid. He's 19 year old. He can, he can <laughs> he run all day. He no, can run give, all day if he wants. Give him two pixie sticks. He'll run all day. <laughs> and you put him in the where both the player and the coach feel he projects is at the eight. They, they both feel he projects there. Give him some time in his more natural spot and a game that means a lot and kind of see where it goes. And I, I think you put Warren at the six. And like you so said, you don't get that passing, but you, you got two, you've got a center back in Trussie that can pass. And carry and the McKenzie ball. And McKenzie are very good and, passers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and McK- and Trussie's as good a ball carrier out of that center back spot as as you're going to have. I, I think mean, it's I think it's possible you see Trustee and Elliott because McKenzie did play yeah. a lot in Atlanta and then also in the midweek. Uh, and if that's the case, if you go Trustee and Elliott, yeah, those are your two. Yeah. Those are your two best passers. Right. So that mitigates that. I also think a strike against Jones is that. You maybe don't want him in there against uh, against a team with Sebastian Javinko <laughs> because he has maybe a penchant to, for leaving a foot in too much. Yeah, and you don't you don't want to give you them, don't want to give them a, a copious amount of free kicks because they yeah. will burn you. Oh yeah, they'll at least um, get, at least get one in on you. Yeah, so you you, you probably don't want to. Do yeah, that. and I, I think Jones makes eighteen though at, at minimum. Oh, absolutely, because yeah. I think he gives you an option of you know if he's if you need defense, you take off Fontana. Uh, if you need offense late, you take off Craval, and you've got a little bit more dynamic in there. I think I think he's kind of a good uh, Swiss Army knife there. If he can yeah. do he can do eight, he can do six. So that, I think that would be good. Get Burke to start? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, would I give Burke the start? <laughs> I don't know. Will Curtin give nah, Burke the not. start? No. Uh, with Sapong being out Tuesday, I would I would assume that uh, that Sapong starts. Pico starts. Because uh, he was completely out of the eighteen, probably Elsino, um, which yeah. I think is well, that's fine. Smart squad rotation, absolutely. I, you know, Epps maybe doesn't make the bench as a wing option. Mm-hmm. You'd have to see. I, that obviously depends on whether or not uh, he, maybe. He, well, I guess maybe he does because if Bedoya is not there and yeah. Montana starts, then you've got one less guy on the bench. Um, but you know, he might be on there. I think you're going to probably have Burke and Simpson on the bench. This week, because you are going to want you, yeah. you need three points at home against Toronto yeah. to continue 
nothing else, just to continue their slide. I just want to see Burke get a really long, consistent run at the top. I yeah, I, yeah, I agree, but I also think Burke is better uh, is better equipped at this point in his career and his mentality because of the kind of wrecking ball of energy that he brings. That yeah. he's maybe a little bit better equipped to provide a burst in short in short stints off the bench in mm-hmm. a way that Jay Simpson has proven completely incapable of right. doing, and in a way that C.J. Sapong. Certainly, he's not built for that. He's not, he's not a short burst. Kind I mean, of guy. he he did he did for times he mm-hmm. did that well for times at Kansas City and early with the Union, and there's been times where he's been on the bench and he's forced his way back in because yeah. he's played so well as a sub. But I think CJ's more of a kind of a diesel engine. You yeah. want to get him going, he's get him feeling, yeah. get the yeah. He's out there. He wants you know. You need him to beat up. He's not backs. a ping pong. He's not a ping pong ball no. just hitting people. Like <laughs> Corey Burke is All right now. You want him to kind of get out there and just kind of be that battering ram to. You know, against the center backs. Um, so I think we'll wrap it up on that. Uh, you got a quick prediction for Toronto? Quick prediction. Uh, let's go 3-2 Union. Wow, a lot of, a lot of goals. Uh, I'll go 2-1 Union. Maybe not quite as many goals, but I think I think they get three points. I think this this level of confidence is unprecedented. It, it, it is, and it's something. But I think it's there, though. I'm changing, I, I, I'm changing mine to 5 nothing Toronto. <laughs> and it's something because I was on with the, uh, Matt Leon, and he asked me what's the difference about this team. And I think they're taking the chances better than they were earlier in the year. And I think they're better take, still can be better. Absolutely, but I think they're doing it at least. They're, they're at least out there kind of taking a chance. But I do think there is a confidence in this team that, um, and there's because I think because Dochel's playing well, I think he's kind of lifting some of the boats around them. And so I think, and then you can feed off of his mm-hmm. confidence, and then Epps just has that youthful confidence, like. So you can feed off that, and I think Fafa is a naturally confident guy. I think Fafa, it's just and has been playing well. Gets it opens, and has been playing really well. Opens he, his account. I'm going to say. By the way, I'm going to say three two. David Akam scores a goal in the 78th to to win it. Yeah, I like he's, that. He's gonna. He's a streaky guy. He's yeah. got a goal. He's going to start pumping them in, and, he, and, and, and he's going to go and, on a streak. And I just like that uh, uh, Fafa has turned into kind of your second provider out there and taken a little. Pressure off a of Dutch gal, which I think's helped him. You know, I think it's it's so. I, I and oh, and, I agree. I think I think he's way added to his. He's yeah. not just a straight ahead guy, which maybe he was last year. He I think was, he but I think he's really added to his game. A absolutely. lot more vision, and then he's better at kind of finding the other guys around him. So, and I, I think it's just like this team does have some confidence to them now. So, so I think some confidence and some anger off of that Atlanta game. Absolutely. Um. So, Matt, plug away. Where can people find your stuff? Oh boy, you can find me at DelcoTimes.com, <laughs> where I will have uh, for Thursday's paper uh, both a column and a story on Ernie Stewart's legacy that we certainly teased in great detail here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me and Dave Zeitlin, since I mentioned him, at uh, the Athletic Philadelphia, where we'll have some more reaction. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at SportsDoctorMD. All right. Great to have you, and we will uh, catch everybody next week.